God has chosen to use the pattern of your life to advance his purposes in this world. Even in an unbelieving society, that God has chosen to use your character and conduct to make his name great, to draw people to himself, even in very hostile environments. I mean, many of us, I think, struggle with this. We think that if the culture, if society is unbelieving, or perhaps even hostile to the Christian message, that somehow that God's plan of redemption is going to be thwarted or challenged. And I hope to change that today. I I hope that you will see, in fact, uh, that no, this will just advance his purposes. And we're going to stay out of Matthew for one more week. Um, I want to look at 1 Peter, because I think the passage that Luke just read speaks to God's name being made great through you and the deeds that you do, the character that you have. You know, we have Serve Raleigh coming up this week where we're kind of having an, an, uh, you know, a corporate approach to serving the elementary school down the road. There's going to be a women's shelter that's going to be served, the refugees over at Sandy Forks, as well as First Choice, a pregnancy center. That we're trying to move toward them with good works to serve them. And this passage, I think, is setting a paradigm for us on how we do these things and what the result will be. Now, when we look at Peter, let me just give you a brief context here. Uh, Peter is written, at least from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 2, verse 10. Peter's kind of laying out the excellencies of our salvation. So if you were to go back and read that, you would see the greatness of our salvation, particularly in 9 and 10, the first two verses that were read. In 9 and 10, it's kind of the summation of how great a salvation has been wrought for us in Christ. And then in chapter 2, verse 11, all the way to the end or midpoint of chapter 5, you see Peter begin to work out the implications of what it means to be saved. So in the first half, this is who you are. This is your identity. This is the position that you now have with God. And then the the balance of the book is on, so what do you do with it? How do you live in response to it? And now we have verses 9 and 10 were read, and that's kind of a summary of who we are in Christ. And then 11 and 12, where he says, Beloved, then that's kind of the prologue to all the things that we do, the implication. So this is who we are, this is what we do. Now when we read Peter, I want you to understand that the that the whole context of the book is set in very difficult times. The church was under great persecution, and he was encouraging them that in spite of the persecution and the unbelief of the society, here's who you are. Don't forget your identity, and here's what you do. Don't forget what you're doing, even in the midst of suffering and trials. So let's look at 9 and 10. This is just the identity that we have. This is the position that we have. And notice the words that Peter uses. So he's kind of talking to us as pilgrims, as it were. You are sojourners. You are exiles. And this is your identity. Don't forget this. He says, you're a chosen race. Now, uh, to say that you're a chosen race, the verses right prior to this, people Uh, Peter writes about those who reject Christ, who find Christ offensive, who stumble over Christ. But then he says, but you're different because you've been chosen. That's your identity. God has chosen you. 
It wasn't based on any merit. It wasn't based on some goodness that you have. It wasn't based on some foreseen faith. God chose you. You didn't have mercy, but now you have it. And the evidence of his mercy is that he chose you. You weren't chosen randomly by God, and it wasn't your lucky draw that you were chosen. But God chose you for his own pleasure. The doctrine of, of election, the doctrine of election leaves every Christian very humble, very thankful, perhaps a bit confused. The mystery of it's profound. But I'm humbled by it. I'm thankful for it. Paul says the same thing, though, as Peter. Two different apostles. Paul says, praise be to the name of our Father and God. Where he says, Let me just read. I had it. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. So then it begs the question, what are the spiritual blessings? Well, he tells us. He says, for he chose us in him, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. He predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Do you see? He chose us in him according to the pleasure of his will. It pleased him. It, it caused him joy. And his choice of us was by his pleasure but for his glory, that we glorify him in this. So this is part of your new identity, that you have been chosen by God. But not just that, you've been made a royal priesthood. Now remember in the Old Testament, the only priests were males from the tribe of Levi, and they had to be a certain age, and they had to retire at a certain age. But now we're all made what's called a royal priesthood. Men and women. We all have the ability to come before God. In the Old Testament, you would need to go to the priest. He was your mediator, as it were. He appeals to God. He gives your offering to God. But now you can go directly yourself. You go to God. Men, women, we appeal to God. We're accepted by God. In fact, in Hebrews, the writer in chapter, chapter 10 says, Brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, that's incredible. You and I, we need no mediator. You can appeal to God at any time, anywhere. But not just that, you're a holy nation. In other words, you, what the word holy means, is to be separate. So you've been separated from the children of the world, that you are to be holy. You're marked. You're not different because you dress different, or that your education is different, your language is different, your color is different. None of those things matter. You're different because you're now holy. You're holy in Christ. You know, Jonathan Edwards said, that the key distinction that cannot be counterfeited, that the Christian is known by the pursuit of holiness. We're a holy nation now. We're to be lights in a very dark universe. Not just are we a holy nation, we're also a people of his own possession. That God has claimed ownership of us. You know, in the King James Version, it says that we're a peculiar people. That's sadly and literally often true. Uh, what he's driving at is that God has bound us to himself. And you look at verse 10. It wasn't always this way. You once were not a people, but he's made you his people. That you once had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
You're not known now. Your identity, for me, it's not white American from English and Irish and Italian descent. Or, or my, you know, my education, or my background, or, or the jobs that I've held. My identity now is I belong to God. That God has chosen me, made me a royal priesthood, holy, made me part of a holy nation, and I am now his possession. That is our new identity. That's, if you're a Christian, that's your identity. So let me just stop here for a minute just after these two verses, and, and try to explain what this means to you or, or what the Christian should feel or, or how you ought to understand this. Um, again, kind of set within the context of this pilgrimage that we're on, that we're exiles and sojourners, as he says. It means that you as the pilgrim, now that you've understood your identity, th- there ought to be a wonderment in your soul. There ought to be a wonderment. You, you, you ought to be kind of wondering, not wondering as in you're confused, but wondering as you're amazed at why God would choose you and why God would set the seal of priests upon you and a holy nation of people belonging to himself. Now, of course, all of this is in Christ, right? Jesus has made all of this possible. So we've been chosen in Christ. I read that from Ephesians. You're a priest in Christ, It's his blood which brings you to the altar. It's in Christ that we're made holy. It's his holiness is our holiness. And it's in Christ that we're now part of the family of God, that through faith we become children of God. So all this is in Christ, but God has set a seal on you. That's your new identity. That should cause a wonderment with you. Now, sadly for many of us, this is like, yeah, it's nice. It it, it doesn't hit us with the weight that it should. David Wells was a, is a new uh, theology professor, taught at Gordon-Conwell when I was there, and uh, he talks about the problem that we have not being impressed by these things anymore. And he says that our culture now has, has kind of attributed to God a, cert, a sort of weightlessness. And here's what he says. It's one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. I, I don't mean by this that he is ethereal, but rather that he has become unimportant. He rests upon the world so inconsequentially as to not be noticeable. He has lost his saliency for human life. Those who assure the pollsters of their belief in God's existence may nonetheless consider him less interesting than television, his commands less authoritative than their appetites for affluence or influence, his judgments no more awe-inspiring than the evening news. And is truth less compelling than the advertiser's sweet fog of flattery and lies? That is weightlessness. It's a condition we have assigned him after having nudged him out of the periphery of our secularized life. His truth is no longer welcome in our public discourse. The engine of modernity rumbles on and he is but a speck in its path. So we're we're not so impressed with God anymore. And that's to our laws. Your identity is belonging to the creator of the universe. That ought to lead to a wonderment. But not just that. As pilgrims, when you sense this identity now, you ought to marvel at your included in this unfolding redemptive plan of God. God is doing an amazing thing. Think about, let's just do a quick scope over redemptive history here. 
God creates a kingdom. And he appoints a man and a woman to be vice regents in that kingdom. And of course, they rebel against his kingdom, wanting to establish their own. And so we see the perishing of the kingdom in their sin. But God in his mercy, which is greater than our stupidity, moves with grace towards us, and he promises to bring this kingdom back, to restore the kingdom, to recreate, if you will, this kingdom of God. And then you see him choose Abraham in Genesis 12. And this is kind of what what one scholar says is a partial kingdom. It's a picture of it, if you will. It's a picture of the way the kingdom will be. And, and, And so he gathers the people of Israel together, and he begins to move through them, and he begins to move on them, again revealing himself now. Closer and closer he draws. And you see the history of Israel is one failure after another. It was partial. It was never perfected. But then Jesus comes as the perfect son of man. He comes as the second Adam to bring a new kingdom, a present kingdom. And his kingdom is evidenced by his teaching and his miracles. And he begins to say, this is the kingdom that I'm bringing. Israel, that was a partial kingdom. It was only a foreshadowing of what I now bring. Of course, he calls his disciples in. And then they go out and they proclaim the kingdom with people coming into it by faith. That's where we are. Gentiles coming into this kingdom that was partially revealed in Israel, but now fully revealed in Christ. That's why if you look in verse 9, if you have a Bible with cross-references, you'll see little letters next to those phrases because they're all drawn out of the Old Testament. Exodus and Deuteronomy. He's taking these names that were once applied only to ethnic Israel, and now he's spreading it out to Jew and Gentile alike. This idea that now we are the people of God. There's a new exodus, not leading out of Egypt anymore, but a new exodus leading out of sin and slavery to sin and fear of death. Now we're in this kingdom of God. A new people, a new exodus, going to a new perfected kingdom that we wait So right now, we, like Israel, are in exile. We are waiting for this kingdom to come in its full glory. And we live and exist as God's people now. We can marvel over how God's plan has unfolded, and we're in it. You and I, we are now been folded into the plan of God as we wait for the plan to continue to its consummation. But not not only do we wonder and marvel over this, we also can labor to declare his excellencies. Look at the back end of 9. About declaring the excellencies of him who has called us from darkness into his wonderful light. When I think about declaring his excellencies, I, I think about worship like we do here on Sunday morning. We gather together and we declare his excellencies through song and the breaking of the word and the, and the listening and the doing of the word. But I think there's more than just declaring his excellencies in terms of us worshiping God, but it's also speaking of God. Now, when I used to think of evangelism, I used to think of evangelism as, as kind of strong-arming somebody to believe the things that I believe. But, but now I've come to understand that evangelism is really just, I want people to see how great God is. I, I, I want them to know the joy that God is, the strength that God is, the holiness that God is, the power that he has. We want them to rejoice over God like we want to rejoice over God. We want to make God great. Not that we're making him great. Here he is great. We want to see him 
enjoyed as great. That's what it is to declare the excellencies of him. That we want others to know the greatness of the God that we know. And this is what 11 and 12 come in. So you look at 9 and 10 as this is your new identity. And then look at 11 and 12 because they're, they're together. This is how we declare his excellencies. This is how we make his name great. And you're going to see in 11, it looks more inwardly at our character. And, and you look at 12, it looks more outwardly at our conduct. So two facets, two ways to make his name great. First, look at 11 with me about this inward look, this character. He wants us to develop a godly character. This is how we make his name great. And notice what Peter does. He calls us beloved. Now, <clears throat> we are a people who love titles. And Peter had quite a few titles. Went up on the mountain with Jesus. He was an, of course, he was called as an apostle. Went up on the mountain with Jesus. Jesus appeared to him after the resurrection. He was called to be a leader among the leaders. And he just doesn't pull those tags and badges out. He says, beloved, beloved. And that's a familial connection. We love each other. He says, beloved, I urge you to abstain from these passions of the flesh. Now, when that word urge, it's a strong word. It's a loving word. It means to come alongside, like a, a father to a son who sees his son getting off track, and he wants him to go right, or a coach to a player. He says, I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Now, what are these passions of the flesh? Well, they're just desires of the flesh. In Peter, they're, they're desires of our sinful flesh. They may be good desires, but they've just gone rogue on us. They've gone wild on us. They're just giving way to any desire that comes into our soul. We move towards that's what he's warning us about, to abstain from those desires that govern us or control us. You just kind of see it, Paul speaks about it in Galatians 5. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So it's not all sexual sin per se. It's not financial sin per se. It can be envy or rivalry. He says war against these. Abstain from these things because they make war with your soul. And he gives us two reasons here why you are called to engage. You know, the idea of let go and let God, just cast that out of your mind. The Christian life is a very active life. It's a very diligent life. And that we are to make war. So, so two reasons he gives us here. One is that you're an exile and you're a sojourner. I, I, again, remember, remember the identity? You're an exile. You're not to accommodate and practice the patterns of the people with whom you dwell. Again, you see him dipping back in the Old Testament. You know, when, when Moses was leading the people... Well, when the, excuse me, when the people were in exile in Babylon, uh, they were not to adapt the practices of the Babylonians. They were to remain holy. They were to remain obedient to God. They were to be a people who knew that this was not their home. They were to behave as a people that 
was in accordance with the home that they would occupy. For you and I, we are sojourners and exiles here. This is not your home. So the patterns and practices of the cultures in which we dwell, those are not our, necessarily our patterns and practices. We are to behave in a way, to fight those desires, to behave in a way that would honor the home to which we're pointing, which is the new heavens and new earth. So we're to abstain from these things. But also, he gives us a second reason, and that is they wage war against your soul. You know, that idea of war, it's a long-term military conflict, the word means, that we are to wage war, that we are to go into battle against the tendency that we have to give way to whatever passions we have that lead us away from God. It's a different kind of battle, though. It's not with tanks and guns. It's an internal battle. It's the desires of our soul. James talks about the desires that battle within us and these desires that can morph and and be conceived and give birth to sin, which leads to death. It's the battle within that we're going after here. It's the inward character. It's the inner life. Why? Because it wages war against your soul. It takes away the joy and the satisfaction that we have with God. You know, you, you wonder if a person has a bag of popcorn before they come to a steak dinner, the steak dinner is going to be less significant because they've been filled up with just popcorn of life. When we, when we fill ourselves up and satisfy ourselves on the desires of this world, of course God's going to be less at least initially appealing. He's saying, no, this wages war against your soul. And Jesus makes very clear in Matthew, in Matthew 16 about the importance of this battle. He says, for what will it profit a man or a woman if he gains the whole world and loses his or her soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his or her soul? What, what would you give? You know, the, so, so let me just stop here for a minute and speak to you about you regarding this inward battle. Character is a fight for the soul. So, so in Proverbs 4, 23, it says, guard your heart for out of it comes the wellspring of life. Do you see the issue here? We have all kinds of battles in our world right now. We have battle with ISIS, becoming a global battle. We have political battles, clearly, in our country. We have financial battles that we're that we're fighting. And these are all important battles. But none of them trump this battle, the battle for your soul. None trump this, the intensity and the importance that you and I need to place on this. I mean, when was the last time, or have you not thought of, has your mind not drifted to what would a sexual experience be with this person? Or your mind moves to uh, kind of lying in a, in, in a meeting. You know, I, I've got I've to adjust the truth in a business meeting so I don't look so foolish or unprepared. Or how am I going to get around this test? What can I do to maybe skirt the issue on a test that might lead me to maybe cheat or to lie? Or who, who are you like right now really angry with or... Who are you envious with that when you see them, you, you're constantly throttled by what they're wearing or how they look? I mean, I mean do, you, do you investigate what just goes through your mind and the desires of your heart? More money that you may want, more recognition. I mean, do, do you have any handle on your own desires and how, how controlled are they? 
Desires aren't bad things unless they're out of your control, unless they're pointed in a, in a deathly direction. You know, David Pallison wrote an article that I've sent out to, I don't know, probably 150 people, but it's titled, To Take the Soul to Task. That we've got to take our own soul to task. We have to look at our own soul. You know, John Calvin, the reformer in the 16th century, said that our lives are a lifelong race in repentance. It's just constant. We take our soul out and we say, what have you been dwelling on? And, and it leads us to confession. Character is essential to us, the inward character. It is worth the fight. But not, not just is it an inward battle. It's a corporate event. Maintaining our character, developing our character, is a corporate event in our life. It, it can't, you know, when you look at these terms, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for his own, those are all collective terms. We're moving as a pack. Exiles and sojourners, they move as a group. That You cannot fight sin and develop character on your own. You cannot do it from, from a position of isolation. The writer of Hebrews says, But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by this deceitfulness of sin. In other words, sin wants to occupy a place in your life and say, No, I'm really attractive and I'm really, it's good that I'm here. So it wants to deceive you into its place in your life. But we're called to exhort one another to fight this sin because it deceives us. We need others to help us to find and move beyond our sin. When, when we were isolated from one another, we're very susceptible. So as a kid, when I grew up, they had invented the television. And the, the, the show, and by the way, this is intuitive. This is not counterintuitive. This is substantiated by nature. So when I'd watch TV as a kid, we watched the Animal Kingdom. Animal Kingdom was a great, they have animal shows today, Animal Planet or something. But I love the animal shows because they would always have the scene where the antelope gather around this reservoir, or this body of water on some African plain. And all the antelope are around there and they're just drinking. And, and they're, they're a little wary, but they're drinking. And there's always the lioness. She's crouched in, in, in the grass a ways away. And then you see her get up, and then she's about to move toward the antelope. And then she bolts. And, of course, all the antelope just begin to then, they take off. And they move and hurt. And they're moving. And, and she can never seem to catch them. And then one, one stupid antelope goes right they do. They leave the pack, and what do you know? They're gone. You, you know it. All of a sudden, the, the lioness goes after the one that leaves. And, 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 and the, the thing's trying, and you're pulling for it, and then all of a sudden, the lioness gets one claw in the back hind quarter, and then climbs up, gets the other one in the shoulder. The weight drives the antelope down, and he's flapping around for a minute, and he's dinner. And, of course, all the other antelope are... The, the, <laughs> You ever seen that? They just stop and they look. Are they saying, who's going to go after that one? Are they learning? I don't know what they're doing. I've always thought, why are you guys stopping and looking now? They should have helped them out before. But that's what happens to us in the sense that when you isolate yourself, when you try to develop character in isolation to others, it will not work. You, you need the body. And this, this inability that we have to be vulnerable with one another the inability that we have to let our guard down with one another 
uh, only goes to hurt us and, and hurt those that might be drawn in and helped as we. And you know how this works. Someone shares something of gut-wrenching honesty in the group, and what happens? Everybody comes out with something. It always happens. And then you feel, you feel closer to one another, and you all appreciate Jesus more. That's what happens. I mean, you, you, I, I'm sure you've experienced that once. One does it, boom, they all do it. So, so character is in community. And last, character is important because it lends credibility to the gospel. This is our weakest point here. This is where we're most vulnerable. If we fail at character, God is maligned. He's misrepresented. And we all have examples of this. But where we walk in a godly character, God is honored. God is made, if you will, a little more believable. The gospel's made a little more believable. Alexander McLaren, a Scottish preacher of the 19th century, said, the world takes its notion of God, most of all from the people who say they belong to God's family. They read us a great more than they read the Bible. They see us. They only hear about Christ, but they see us. So what do they see about you? I mean, the, the inner character of a man or of a woman lends credibility. So about 14 years ago, we had a missions conference here. and Maybe some of you, a few of you would remember this. But we had a, um, a pastor. He was a Persian pastor from Iran. He had come to faith in Christ here. And he was pastoring a small congregation. And he shared his testimony. And here's what he shared. That this nice Christian family went up and introduced themselves to him. And they invited him to their home, and they were doing very good deeds for this man. And he was really appreciating it, but he never trusted him. I, you can't trust people like that. And so, but he was drawn to him. He found them attractive. But he didn't believe them. And, so, and he admitted this right from this platform. He would go at night and look in their windows. <laughs> Stalker, I'm telling you, is what it was. <laughs> but he wanted to see if they prayed before their meals when he wasn't there. He wanted to see if they would fight. They always seemed so happy together when he was there. Were they happy together when he wasn't there? And, and he testified that their actions and their character as displayed, their integrity, led credibility to the gospel in which he finally believed. So, so character is important. You see in verse 11, abstain from these things. They wage war against your soul. But look, he then says about conduct. He says, keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. This is an outward look. If you get the inward in, the outward's going to be more natural. The inward is like the engine. But he says, keep your conduct honorable. Now notice what he says here, and I don't know if you'd pick this up. He says, keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. Now, folks, if you don't know this, he's writing to the Gentiles. So it sounds screwy if you were, it's like, hey, keep, Tom, keep your conduct honorable among the Americans. Well, aren't I American? And he's saying, no, you're not anymore. You're no, you're no longer defined by ethnicity. You're defined by faith. You're defined by your relationship now to Christ. So while you're in a world of Americans that are not believers, you as a believer secondarily American, but primarily a believer, that you keep your conduct honorable. And here's the context in which you keep it honorable. It's going to be harsh towards you. It's going to be difficult. Notice that they're going to speak of you as evildoers. What does he mean by speak of you as evildoers? 
Well, what happens is, is you begin to live a life of holiness, you're going to be different from those around you. And as you're different from those around you, you're going to be mocked, you're going to be ridiculed. The early church is filled with examples of this. So, so you're living on the first block of some boulevard in Corinth, and you come to faith in Christ. And everybody else, are just they're practicing their pagan understanding of God like they always have, and they're going to the temple to offer up a sacrifice to the pagan God, and you don't go with them. And what's wrong with you? You always used to go with us. Now why don't why don't you go now? What's wrong with you? And 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 so you're beginning to be mocked because you're different. You don't practice life the way the culture does, and so you may be mocked. You may be ridiculed, or or for example, you know they would worship the emperor. So you'd burn incense to the emperor, and so but you're not burning incense to the emperor anymore. And they said, what are you seditious? You against the government now? By the way, if you were to read in Peter chapter 2, verse 13, the very next verse, he talks about how to handle the government. Why? Because the believers are being accused of being seditious because they wouldn't burn incense to an emperor. And so he's giving us this instruction here. Keep your conduct honorable, even in the context of struggle and difficulty. But how do you do it? Well, he tells us in the next verse. He says, let your good works be seen, or they may see your good works and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, our conduct is honorable, outwardly speaking, as we do good deeds for people that are visible, that are observable. And doing good deeds are just that, any act of kindness. So we have this serve Raleigh coming up this week. We have a team of, I think, close to 25 people. They're going to serve the elementary school down the road here. Just an act of grace. It's displaying, really... God is saying, hey, here's who you are. Now go show them who I am. That's what we're doing. We're acting with grace towards them. Budgets are tight. We're going to do all kinds of work for them. We have a group of um, six different small groups, half a dozen small groups, uh, raising money and serving the First Choice Pregnancy Center, the 4,000 steps. We have a small group that's preparing a dinner and serving it at the women's shelter downtown. We have a barbecue and and prayer meetings going on with the refugees at Sandy Forks. All these are just good works. They're good deeds. What they're meant to do is to show them who God is by letting them see our acts of mercy and grace. These are the good works. And as what Peter's saying is, as they see your good works, they will ultimately be led to praise God. So John Calvin said that when they see your good works, the good works They work leading people to believe in Jesus Christ. Their conversions come because and through the good works that you've demonstrated of God. We don't cause salvation. It's not causal, it's instrumental. It's a means by which they come to see the greatness of God. Now you notice that they're going to give him praise on the day of visitation. What does that mean? Well, it can mean a couple things. Uh, it may mean that when the person comes to faith in Christ, when God visits them with grace and they believe, that they think back and they thank God for all the evidences, all the Christians that had served them at different points in their life. Thank you, God, for them, that I now understand the works that they were doing were pointing me to you. I see you as great now by their deeds. Or perhaps it's on the day of judgment. On the final day when God returns in glory and brings all people before him, that the believers, those who have been converted, say, 
I understand, God, thank you for this person and this person and the works that they've done to lead me to understand your greatness. So, so th- this, is, this is the idea of conducting ourselves honorably is through good deeds. It can be done anywhere at any time. So, so you see here in, in 9 and 10, this is an identity that you now have because of God's mercy. And this is a new purpose in life in 11 and 12, to develop the character inwardly, but to go outward with our acts of service and good deeds. So let me just give you a few points to orient your mind on this. In terms of serving, we want to serve for God's sake, not for ours. You know, it's always muddled in my mind sometimes, and I think in yours, when we think about I want them to like me. I hope they appreciate the work I've done. I get resentful, perhaps, if they don't thank me, which reveals something about my own motivation. We want to check our motivation. We want to think, God, I want to do this for your sake, for your name. I want them to see who you are. I want them to see how great you are by the deeds that I do. So we want to orient our mind rightly. We want to go into acts of of service and going into good deeds, saying, God, I want you glorified in this event. That's how I prayed for you this day, that God would be glorified in the way you hear this sermon, in the way you respond to the sermon. But then also, we want to do these good deeds for the betterment of our community. In other words, as Christians, particularly as conservative Christians, the tendency is to withdraw from a society that seems to be deteriorating. No, 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 we don't want to withdraw. We want to embed ourselves in it. We don't want to pull away. We want to move towards. We're exiles. This is not our home. But we want to influence those with whom we dwell. So in Jeremiah chapter 29, he says these words. He says, seek, now remember, Jeremiah is speaking to the community of the people of God who were living in Babylon at the time. And he tells them to build houses. Go get yourself established there. You're going to be there a while. And he said this, he says, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find welfare. The idea is that we are exiles. It's the exile imagery is being carried forth. So while here, let's seek the betterment of the people around us. Let's do good deeds for their good that they might see God, that they might be converted. Let's not pull away. Let's not be in fear. Many Christian parents operate under the auspices of fear. I can't let my kids see anything or be influenced by anybody that is different than they are. Or they might hear words, or they might see things, or they might hear experiences. And we run in fear. We don't run in faith. They're going to follow your lead. Will they be influenced? I'm sure. Will you have to work it through with them? Yes, you should. But let's not walk in fear. We are to seek the welfare by serving these people. And then we also want to serve together. You know, when we do these one-off acts of service, that's a fine thing to do. I want to encourage that. But it's easy for someone, for a non-believer to say, well, she's nice. She just does those sorts of things. But when we move as a church, then it really establishes the belief system of the church. This is what the church thinks about God. This is why we're all here. 25 of us praying for you. There are 25 or 30 of us doing a barbecue. We all think the same thing about God. We think he's great. We want you to think he's great. So it really does establish the the system and the belief system of a church. And then last, I would say this, that we want to serve in faith. 
You know, some of you are very uninhibited naturally. And so these things, when we go out and do these acts of service, it's not a big push for you. Others of you are more inhibited. It's more of a push. But I want to remind you that you're all gifted at one level to serve. And I want you to serve without presupposing what success has to look like. You know, notice in the text, it's on the day of visitation, they see these things. It may be a long way off. You may not see it, but that doesn't mean it's ineffective. Perhaps some of you may be in fear. I just want to encourage you, just walk in faith. So oftentimes I'll be moving in a ministry context and I'll be scared. I mean, I won't, maybe, I don't know what I'm going to say. Maybe they're going to ask me a question that I won't know the answer for. And so I live with a degree of insecurity. What am I going to do? And so I always remind myself, in Ephesians 2.10, he says that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. The good works, he's already prepared for you. And so if he's going to prepare them for you, he's going to give you the stuff that you need to do what he's called you to do. And, and I think on that, and then I move in faith. That maybe I don't look as polished as someone else. That's all right. I want to respond in faith to what the Lord's calling me to do. So <clears throat> I want you to, if you will, remember your identity. It's a huge amount in 9 and 10. That's your new identity. Your new purpose is, again, what is it? To abstain from those desires which war against your soul, but then move, conduct yourselves honorably. So those of you who are moving in Serve Raleigh, we even have a um, silent auction at 3 o'clock at Sola today. Please be there. Contribute to it. It's going to give money for the pregnancy center. But, but conduct yourselves honorably. So let's just take a few minutes before um, an elder closes us in prayer and, and think about those two things. Do I understand my identity? Do I need help understanding? Come forward if you do. Uh, am I conduct my, conducting myself honorably? If I'm not, then repent of that and move forward. And then the brother closes in prayer. Thank you.